this time thing and this short cycle, we need dopamine, we need desire to live. We won't do anything if we don't have a desire. But if your desire is only short term and instant, it, it becomes addiction, whether it's, yeah, I used to think this, this thing about cell phone addiction was just like, yeah, yeah, that's a clever metaphor, but not really. But in fact, addiction is a behavior pattern. It's, it can be, if you're addicted to a substance that actually has bad physical effects like alcohol in particular or drugs, it, it's worse, but it's, it's the behavior pattern and that short, that foreshortened cycle of wanting something that doesn't actually provide the relief you're seeking much more than it is the substance that's really at the heart of addiction. The conversations at the interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that's working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. Let me introduce our, our host for tonight, and she uh, will introduce our speaker. Um, it's really fun to welcome Kara Platoni to the stage here for the third time speaking at the interval. The first time she spoke about her book, We Have the Technology, uh, which I highly recommend. It includes a chapter on Long Now and our 10,000-year clock and some interviews of, of Long Now folks. Um, the second time she came and, uh, and talked about scurvy, we had a night discussing the science and history of scurvy. So as you can see, we're eclectic, Kara's eclectic. It really fits. Um, and uh, she is, Kara uh, Platoni is a science reporter who actually has traveled around the world interviewing biohackers, scientists, uh, virtual reality uh, pioneers. Uh, and uh, in writing her book, um, she's a lecturer and assistant dean for students at UC Berkeley's graduate, student, uh, graduate school of journalism. Please give a big round of applause for your host tonight. Thanks, Michael. Thanks. Okay, let's see, I'm on, I'm good. Hello everybody, thank, thank you for coming out on a school night. Um, I hope your gums are in great health. That's what I learned from scurvy night. <laughs> so, uh, all right, so let me introduce our, tonight's guest of honor. So Esther Dyson has devoted her life to discovering the inevitable, inevitable and promoting the impossible. Beginning in the 1980s, she was an important commentator on emerging, emerging technologies with her monthly newsletter, Release 1.0, which ran for 25 years and led to her 1996 book, Release 2.0, A Design for Living in the Digital Age. During the 90s, she was the chairman of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. You all can cheer as much as you want. Yeah. And at the end of the decade, she was the founding chairman of ICANN, the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers. More recently, Esther has been a successful investor, board member, and advisor to dozens of companies with a particular focus on health and technology startups. These include 23andMe, Flickr, Square, Evernote, Meetup, Prognos, and she's sold companies to Microsoft, Yahoo, with a silent exclamation point, 
Symantec, Apple, Google, Facebook, and Uber. So Esther spoke at the Long Now seminar series all the way back in 2005 when she shared the stage with her father, the physicist Freeman Dyson, and her brother, the author George Dyson. So her current focus and our focus tonight is on a 10-year nonprofit project she started called Wellville. It was launched in 2013, and so tonight we're going to talk about how long-term thinking applies to healthcare. So please join me in welcoming Long Now board member and founder and chairman of Wellville, Esther Dyson. Thank you. So, I thought at the beginning, for people like me who are new to Wellville, we'll start out with just a little bit about how it works and what, you, what you've been up to, and then we'll take it big. We'll, we'll talk about time and healthcare, and, and then and we'll talk about anything you want. We'll do some Q&A at the end. So first, why healthcare and why now? Okay, so just one other introduction. Mm. Christina Kukos, who for many years was editor of Release 1.0 and is now our sixth Wellville team member and is kind of meta because <laughs> each of the first five people have one of the communities up here that Otto drew ni so nicely for you. And her community is the Wellville team itself. Then there's Brad Perkins, who's one of our advisors and has worked at the Center for Disease Control and Human Longevity, Inc., which is Craig Venter's company and is now, has his own company called Sapiens Data Systems. And Jeff Domland, who is our team member who works in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Okay. So, if, if the questions get too hard, we'll... Uh... Yeah, we'll do an all play. Yeah. So, uh, it's, Sometimes uh, when I think about healthcare, I tend to think about either the giant picture, the national picture, which is Affordable Care Act, whatever Congress is doing to the Affordable Care Act, you know, large insurers, or I think about the really small. I think about kind of interesting things that are going on in personalized medicine, uh, you know, health metrics, tracking, kind of optimizing your own health. This is different. Wellville is different. Wellville says health is collective, but it's also local. And yeah. I'm wondering if you can talk about why you're starting in the middle. Okay, so basically I was a journalist, I studied economics, and I did all the stuff you heard about. But in the late, well sort of in the 2000s, I sold my business and began to get more and more interested in healthcare as most of the cool stuff in tech was happening in healthcare because the other stuff was not quite as useful or significant, whatever. But the more you looked at all this, you had to start asking, why are we spending so much money on repair when we could be maintaining human bodies and minds so much better? And so the first, kind of the first lesson is it's not health care, it's health. And it's so hard, even when people are, you know, I write things about health or investing in health and it keeps ending up investing in health care. And it's not, it's investing in whatever it is, and that's sort of the whole question that actually creates health. And preventive health care is sort of as if you were talking about poverty reduction, which people do talk about, but they should be talking about economic development and productivity and, and you know, it's, it's a creative process. It's not a repair process that creates people who are healthy and, and so forth. So. 
you know, it's amazing. I've, I've learned a ton. <laughs> Whatever. For, for people um, watching on the internet, a really fascinating vehicle is going by. It's yeah. a genie scissor lift, I think. Anyway. <laughs> the robot car uh, of our future. So it, it, the question is obvious. The answer is kind of, we know we should be doing all these things. There's so much evidence about the return on investment for prevention of diabetes, for nurse family partnership, which helps mothers understand how to go through, you know, not smoke and drink while they're pregnant and sleep enough and talk to their babies and understand that postpartum depression is a phase and just all this stuff. So let me just make sure that I understand. So the reason you don't like health care as opposed to health is because it, that implies that it's after the fact, that you're fixing something after yeah, it's broken? Yeah, I mean, it's, and it's medical. And the, the whole, you know, like everything else, this is aspirational. I do not think we're going to put all the pharmaceutical companies out of business. But the problem with the cost of health care is not the price of health care as much as it is the need for health care. If you hmm. could reduce that need... First, it would be much cheaper, but second, you'd have all these healthy people running around being happy and productive and singing all the time. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice? So you put um, them out of business on the front end, is what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, it's, when I was first thinking about this, I interviewed a guy called Charlie Silver, who yeah. created the website Real Age. Who's, who's run into Real Age? Oh, you, yeah. actually, I remember Real right. Age. Yeah, it, it's basically a cheesy... <laughs> yeah, we can share. <laughs> It's, its business model is selling vitamin supplements, but it's probably done a lot of good for people's health by making them answer questions about, do they have a pet? How do they communicate with their partner? How much do they sleep? All these things. And he ended up selling it to Hearst, which then sold it to ShareCare. But does anybody here know who he sold his first business to? Jiffy Lube. <laughs> For real. <laughs> it was car maintenance. Wow. And, yeah, why, why don't we do for our bodies and our minds what we do for our cars? You guys remember Real Age? You would type in all of these things. I would lie blatantly about how often I exercise yes. and how many vegetables right. I ate, and then it would say, your Real Age is 27, and then you'd yeah. feel fantastic. And you could fudge the answers, but you knew you were doing that, and it would make you want to... Okay, so let's talk a little bit about Otto's beautiful drawing. So these are the five Wellville cities. Tell communities. Us, communities. Yeah. Health, not health care. Communities, not cities. Five dollars each time. Journal oh God. <laughs> this is real-time editing. All right, so tell us a little bit about why these five. Was the idea five that had lots of things in common, or they're each their own sandbox? So it, it originally began 2013. I talked to Peter Diamandis, and I had been on the judging panel for the, ex, the healthcare X Prize, which ended up not happening. Hmm. And the idea was take you know, a population of covered lives of an insurance company, apply some intervention, and do the financial model and see who would win. For a bunch of reasons, it didn't happen. And I asked Peter, would you mind if I just kind of lightly said this is kind of like an X prize for health as opposed to care. And the idea was five communities, five places, five million if we could get it, and five years. Oh, and five metrics. 
very clever. <laughs> and I thought, somebody should do this. I was going to give a talk saying, somebody should do this. Well, <laughs> so I gave a talk, said I would do it, and then I had to figure out how. And <laughs> I will make this very brief, but as I was exploring, brainstorming, trying to figure out what this all was, there was a guy who showed up in you know, better dressed than I was, or most of my friends, who asked, so how are you going to fund this? What are you going to measure? How are you going to pick the communities? Uh, all these awkward questions. <laughs> and he didn't go away. I had lunch with him. And he became our CEO. He, he brought in Jeff Domeland. So we decided, well, Rick's a very orderly guy, so we spent a fair amount of time thinking about all these questions, and finally I said, you know, let's, uh, let's just find some communities. So then we created this amazing long application form. You had to be under 100,000 people. You had to be geographically self-contained. So the idea was whatever happened in the community would reverberate within the community rather than get getting dissipated out. So it's not like one of these neighborhood programs, but you never know. They don't have lunch together. They go have lunch the next neighborhood over where they work or something. And third, you need to have some kind of multi-stakeholder coalition. There needed to be somebody that was applying that was already trying to do something with the community's health. So it wasn't we're going to find five communities and a nice white lady's going to show up and tell you how to live. It was much more, we're going to give you coaching to do what it is that you want to do, but we'll help you do it smarter, we'll help you find funding, but we're not going to give you money and we're not going to charge you. So is it kind of a, like a business accelerator model? Or? Not really. It's, it's sort of in situ. I think of it more as an executive coach or a gym coach, you know, we will tell you about the new gym equipment, we'll advise you which gym might be good, but you're the one who has to get up at 5.30 and it's your body. So, you know, the community has to own it and they have to, they have to go to the gym. On the other hand, it's, it's theirs, you know, and we don't give them fish, we don't teach them how to fish, we help them build their own fishing schools. <laughs> So, but it was more, it was almost more like um, uh, Darwinian. You want something where the, it's kind of like a, a local enclave where yeah. you can well, test. We, we wanted communities that wanted us and we wanted communities that were already doing something. It, you know, so it was not a scientific study, find a random community and do something. It was more, how do you help the communities do what they wanted to do? You know, we, we knew, especially Rick knew a, a little more than nothing. And it's clear the way to make this successful is for the community at least have some leadership that wants to do it. Okay. And so our, our goal was not to show that it was possible for anybody, but to show that for people who wanted to do it, we could help them do it more effectively and to show that, there, again, everybody knows there's a real value to doing this stuff, but somehow there's not, people don't seem to believe it. They don't see there's a good example. We wanted to create models, partly of communities doing that, partly what would it look like 
if you actually funded these programs and we're not, we, Wellville are not funding them, we're trying to figure out how to get them funded, but it, it takes, so it started five years, but it pretty quickly became 10 years. It takes a lot of time to show that these things are working. And so many of these health interventions last for a year or two, and if you hire a grad student to do a regression analysis, you can see some kind of impact, but you can't see an impact that is like the mayor gets reelected, the right. five new employers come to town because everybody's productive, right. people want to move into the community, that sort of thing. This is a slow problem. Yeah. So let's, um, let's go to the all play portion of this and let's, let's tell some stories, let's tell some examples. So I'm wondering if you or other people on the team can tell me just an example of a problem that your community decided to tackle and maybe let's start with one that seems to be working pretty well. Some, something that you think is interesting or successful so far. And this is for you too, Esther, whoever wants to jump in. Okay, well I'll start with the YMCA in Muskegon and then maybe Jeff will do something at Spartanburg. Um, so, the, one other question, so how do you figure out what to focus on? Mm -hmm. And that's both to us and to the communities. Mm -hmm. And there's, you could list 20 things that would be valuable, that would have a return on investment that would be sort of good. And if you tried to do 20 of them, nothing would happen. If you do only one, it's, it's not gonna have enough complementarity. You need, you need a bunch of things to support one another. It's sort of like if you hire one woman in an all-male company, she usually disappears. Right. If you hire three, they support one another. Yeah. It's, this is scientifically determined. Um, so in the same way, you, you focus on two or three, mm -hmm. and the way you pick them, I mean, one, that there's someone in the community that's already doing it is enthusiastic. You pick the ones that are going to succeed because they will bring more people along with them. They'll show that it's possible. They'll make the community feel a sense of pride. They'll train people, and then they'll start spreading. So rather than take the worst problem, which in many cases is opioid mm -hmm. abuse, and probably the most insoluble problem is actually obesity. Take one that somehow seems slightly bounded. And in the case of Muskegon, there's, there's a bunch of different programs. The one that really excites me is the YMCA's Diabetes Prevention Program. And what happened there is every YMCA in the country, in theory, can offer the Diabetes Prevention Program. But you need to have a coach trained. You need to go through some hoops courtesy of the CDC. And then you get certified. Uh, in the case of Muskegon, and now I'll try and get brief, they got part of a grant from Trinity, the health system which operates in Muskegon, in five missions, Trinity is using its own clinicians, five missions means a geography. But in the Muskegon mission, Trinity is working with the Muskegon YMCA to deliver the program. So. Hmm. Yeah, that means Trinity clearly thinks we're pretty cool. The YMCA National is noticing what Muskegon is doing. They're using the money from the CDC to scale, to train people. There's still issues around getting money to offer. So 
I mean, one of the most important things is here is you can offer a free diabetes prevention program. You also need to offer transportation. You need to deal with issues around childcare. You need to put it in the right locations. In other words, it's, it's not that there's this secret thing called the diabetes prevention program, you just do it and it works. You need to deliver it effectively, just like a hamburger restaurant. You know, it's, it's not like incredible IP, but there is IP around the playbook, around the, the training and so forth. And the reason this one excites me in particular is because not only do I expect it to scale within Muskegon, but there's a way of, you know, in the end, the purpose of Wellville is not these five communities. The purpose of Wellville is using these five communities to spread and scale what they're doing. And so we have mm -hmm. aligned goals with the communities, but they're not the same. We want to use the communities, and the communities want it for themselves. And so at the end of the 10 years, we hope a lot of things will spread, but right now, the fact that the YMCA could help spread some of this before the end of the 10 years is also exciting. So the idea is you want to put the, the service where people are already going. It's not a medical, a place where you necessarily go for medical, no. medical care, right? And they, they're now getting referred. So this is just local. It's not like we're a Walmart partner, but the two local Walmarts are referring people. They have wellness days, so they test people for prediabetes and they refer people to the Y. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's stuff like that. It's very tangible and local and blocking and tackling, but there's still this sort of scalable, repeatable element to it. Okay, so if I'm going to the Y to swim or childcare or whatever it is, then I can get screened there. I, what, what else would I find at the YMCA? Well, right now they, they also have something called Livestrong for cancer survivors. Mm -hmm. I mean, the YMCA is a really interesting operation and it's, again, the one in Muskegon is doing a lot more of this than most. The, I mean, this is not a mean thing about the why, they will agree with it, but so, so many whys are more focused on selling memberships to upper middle class people mm -hmm. to pay for their buildings. Mm -hmm. And the one in Muskegon, for a bunch of reasons, lost its building so it's it's much more focused on community service. That, and so that's, the idea that's really is, cool. if it works there, then you scale it to other communities like that. You spread it, yeah. yeah. Okay, good. And, but we also need to scale it within Muskegon because they have 180,000 people. They actually were slightly larger than the 100,000 limit. And that means probably 30 or 40,000 people with prediabetes. Wow, really? Yeah, wow. it's scary. Okay, good. And anybody else on the Wellville team have a... Have a, a favorite project? Yeah, favorite project. Uh, yeah, I, so I'm, I work in uh, Spartanburg, South Carolina, and one of the um, one of the initiatives there involves uh, some innovative financing uh, mechanisms. So one of the one of the other uh, I, I think primary um, goals of Wellville is to uh, to establish some. Um, replicable models around how to pay for things. And in the case of uh, Spartanburg, they have a, uh, a suite, uh, call it that, or a collection of, of nine interventions that are going to be available to all parents of the 650 some odd babies that are born in the city limits every year. And these involve things like uh, uh, teaching mothers how to be 
a, a mother mm -hmm. and uh, nurse family partnership that Esther mentioned before. And a few other initiatives and the idea is that by the time a child reaches the age of four or five years old that they're well prepared for kindergarten and we know that, um, that children who are well prepared for kindergarten end up performing better in third grade and then in sixth grade and ninth grade mm -hmm. and presumably they're, they're better citizens and uh, in the long run they end up costing not only the healthcare system but the education system, the juvenile uh, justice system, mm -hmm. a lot less money. So one of the financing innovations is, uh, involves uh, better understanding what those savings exactly are for a population within a geography getting investors to pay for the programs that will, um, or the initiatives that will improve the child's uh, uh, outlook uh, uh, with these programs, reap the savings at the end of the, the term, and return uh, some, something to the investors. Mm -hmm. That involves getting payers to commit to uh, paying back the investors. And in the case of Spartanburg, the payers are the city government, the school system, and the hospital. Or the, mm -hmm. by the way, Esther has been using the term health, uh, health system. That's sort of what we now call hospitals. Hospitals aren't standalone buildings anymore, they're health systems. So anyway, the health system in Spartanburg is one of the three payers. So I, that, that, that's, in the, the stage of the game where those transactions are being structured, so that payers are being approached with contracts, investors are being wooed. Uh, this is a phase of, of, the, of the initiative called the transaction structuring phase. I'm sure a lot of you know about what that is in other contexts. And they've already gone through the feasibility analysis and it's been determined that, that yes, this could potentially work, provided that investors and payers are willing to step up. Uh, fortunately, in Spartanburg, there are enough committed, um, there's enough um, capital that's committed to uh, improving the outlook of the city, uh, and the payers seem to be willing. So it's really sort of a matter now of um, dotting I's and crossing T's. And, uh, the outlook looks pretty good, but but this this sort of financing model um, is similar to what Esther was talking about with DPP. This could be a model that could be replicated in other communities. Not the exact model, but you know the the theory, the concept of this uh, pay per performance or uh, that's that's a name that it often goes by. Okay. So that's that's a something going on in Spartanburg. Good, Esther. How about something that hasn't worked so well? Um, okay, I'll do that, and then I'd really love to talk about children in long and short term. Okay. So, the one of the mistakes I made was in Muskegon earlier on. I was talking to somebody who was doing a flu vaccination program, and I thought that's really great. You know, that's simple, a quick win, uh, and it was not that simple. It's really hard to persuade people to go get vaccinated. Nobody in Muskegon was that interested in doing it. And uh, 
we were working with Walgreens and various other people, but not it had no real local champion. And you know, we probably got a few hundred extra people vaccinated, and it just was fizzled. So it wasn't a quick win; it was a quick loss. And but it, it was clear, you know. Don't don't do something that doesn't have a local champion. Don't huh. do something that it wasn't fundamentally that very interesting. Yeah, it's it's great if people don't get the flu this year, but it's not really going to make them not get the flu next year. Hmm. And so the problem is just not enough buy-in. Not, not enough, enough buy-in, and frankly, not enough return. Yeah. I mean, it just nobody's going to have their life changed because they didn't have the flu. I mean, somebody well. might have their life changed if they had the flu and it went really badly, but it right depends just, on which flu, right? Yeah, yeah. but still. Yeah. Um, so the thing, the thing I wanted to talk about, if you would ask me, bring it, <laughs> lay it on me. Was yeah. So, like everyone, and and perhaps slightly earlier than some, started noticing not so much the opioid crisis, which is white people dying, but the problem of addiction and just how widespread it was, and it clearly was getting more widespread. And there seemed to be some relation to that and the, the loss of jobs, especially sort of middle class or slightly lower men and that's Angus Deaton and the statistics and so forth and it it felt kind of familiar to me it reminded me of Russia mm -hmm. where under the Soviets there were people just doing useless jobs and drinking themselves to death I asked one of my friends or I said you know you shouldn't smoke and drink so much because you're gonna die early and he said well life is not so wonderful that we really care about that you know, better to drink now and be happy. The women tended to deal with it much better because for two reasons. One, they had children and they felt they were important in somebody's lives and they had a purpose. And also they took the money that both they and their husbands earned and they went and stood online and turned the money into things that they valued. The money itself was useless and the jobs were purposeless. So. I started reading about addiction, and if anybody wants, you know, there was Gabor Mate, there was uh, Maya Solovitz, who wrote a book called The Unbroken Brain, I think, why you know, addiction is not a character defect. She said it was a learning disorder. And then I read the book that I thought made the most sense, called The Biology of Desire, by a guy called Mark Lewis. And he really said that it was learning from disorder. In other words, if you, fundamentally, if you start your life out with a lack of security, with unpredictable parents, with, you know, basically, if your brain is damaged during the first few years of life, you become vulnerable later on. And there's, you know, there's lots of stuff now about adverse childhood experiences and there's a clear correlation between adverse early childhood experiences and addiction, obesity, dropping out of school, 
uh, abusing your own children, ending up in jail, and so forth and so on. So Mark Lewis, who is himself, you know, was formerly addicted, tells the story of five people and towards the end, he says, I don't really know what my next book is going to be about, but one way or another, it's about time. And in a sense, foreshortening. You, you, lose, you lose your peripheral vision. You're focused only on this thing you desire that you're never satiated. You, you reach for it. That's the moment of desire. You get it, and you're almost immediately back into the cycle. You lose a sense of time. You lose your past that was different. You lose a sense of agency. I can have a future that's different. He talked about Native Americans, the ones who had lost their sense of history are much more subject to alcohol abuse and all those familiar problems. So I went to see him in the Netherlands where he lives. And this time thing and this short cycle. We need dopamine, we need desire to live. We won't do anything if we don't have a desire. But if your desire is only short term and instant, it, it becomes addiction, whether it's, yeah, I used to think this, this thing about cell phone addiction was just like, yeah, yeah, that's a clever metaphor, but not really. But in fact, Addiction is a behavior pattern. It's, it can be, if you're addicted to a substance that actually has bad physical effects like alcohol in particular or drugs, it, it's worse. But it's, it's the behavior pattern and that short, that foreshortened cycle of wanting something that doesn't actually provide the relief you're seeking much more than it is the substance that's really at the heart of addiction. And the trick is how do you change that short-term desire, which is addiction, into long-term desire, which is purpose, where there is a sense of the future and of change and of getting some gratification that's long-term and permanent. So let me ask you, I, I think there are some people who would say uh, the solution is individual. A person has to make good choices. They are responsible for, yeah. they, they are agents of their own fortune. Addiction is a moral failing, personal right. responsibility. And then there are other people who would say, no, it's a structural problem. It's a collective problem, right? People may not have choices. All of their choices may be bad. Their environment may be constraining their choices. Right, right? and they're not making a stupid choice you know, if you have no job, why not go out and get drunk? You'll feel better. Or but why not, if the only job in your community is to deal drugs, then you'll deal drugs, if it's the yes. most lucrative thing, right? Yeah, if and that's, that's different from addiction. I mean, the, the best drug dealers are not addicted. Right. They're smart business people. But, right, but, um, my, but yeah. the point is that your environment gives you a certain set of choices, yes, right? You, 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 and that goes you not can just only addiction, choose. You can only make the choices that you have to make. Um, and so, no, I think, I mean, you can get into long discussions, but fundamentally, how many of you are AI people? Yeah, you know, you, you need a better training set for infant brains. We, we train our AIs. We need to figure out how to train our children's brains, not with rote training, but you know, train them that your mother loves you and that 
life is not totally secure, but your parents love you and they'll take care of you and you need to give them a sense of security so that they can trust in the long term. In a sense, addiction is you've lost trust in everything but this immediate short-term source of solace. But what if that's just not forthcoming from the parents? What if the parents are yeah. never going to be able to provide that? If they're never able to provide it, you know, they... So we're not going to fix all of society's ills, but, and you can't waltz into any of these communities and say we're going to train all the parents because you're, you're really bad parents. Yeah, I would imagine um, that have a terrible result. <laughs> on the other hand, one of the things that I like about the diabetes prevention program is it's, it's not simply here's a set of menus for what you should eat. It's, it's, it's very much, it's how to think about food, it's how to cook, it's how to feed your body and, and look at food as a source of energy and health, but not as a source of comfort. Mm -hmm. It's how to feed your family, how to have dinner together and talk to people while you're, it's, so it's, it's, a, it's kind of a lightweight Trojan horse there's also other programs like Nurse Family Partnership that are much more focused on at-risk young mothers. There are you know, sort of couples counseling. Again, some people should not be married to one another. Some people should probably not be married at all. And some people have kids and, you know, so you, you need to deal with reality. But there are ways to reach the parents. And there's, a bunch of problems, including many people who are, have substance use problems, they're also parents. So you need to deal with different parts of it through different programs, but the, the ones I mentioned are some of them that will solve some of the problems, some short term, like nurse family partnership dramatically reduces things like fetal alcohol syndrome and so forth, and others of them take longer to have an impact. But so, well, to, to the point of Trojan horsing the solution yes. in there. Uh, so I, it sounds like, I don't know too much about the nurse family partnership, but it sounds to me like part of the idea is that you have a backup when the individual fails, right? You have somebody who comes and says, I'm going to help you, I'm going to be constant, I'm going to keep helping you, even though you yeah, don't know what to do, right? Probably their own mother is not there to help them be a good mother, for example. Right, so you have some, some kind of redundancy, right? I'm trying to think of other ways that uh, are kind of effective to incentivize good healthcare, or good long-term thinking for healthcare. Um, I think uh, like education telling me not to eat Doritos because they're terrible for me will not work. I am well educated on the Dorito front, but yeah. I still want to eat Doritos, right? So w what else can you do to get through to me? Well, a so. <laughs> I mean, Maybe nothing. <laughs> one, we, we can tax the Doritos. Okay. Um, two, we can work with the local food providers to sell things that are just as delicious as Doritos. <laughs> I mean, and Doritos in themselves are not evil. It's the... No. It's, they are well, nature's maybe, perfect food. But, <laughs> you know, it's, so people sometimes ask us, you know, are all the community members bought in? No. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, and... Not all the community members were bought into when they go into the grocery store, there's cupcakes in the front. Yeah, it's, it's like, you don't need to be bought in to be manipulated. And yeah. what we're trying to do is help people manipulate themselves for their own long-term health and happiness rather than being manipulated by everything from pricing and the circumstances around them and you know, other, 
it's it's a very complicated, complex, integrated system. But it there's and there's many different parts. There's employers who again have a vested interest in the health of their employees, yet they're still they have vending machines full of really crappy food. They have bosses who exacerbate the mental problems of their employees. Mm -hmm. They have you know, bad working conditions. Okay, so, so you can penalize the bad behavior or make it expensive to do the bad behavior. You can provide me an alternative to my bad behavior. You can get rid of the underlying stress that is driving me to stress eat my Doritos. Yeah. And, and to you know, ignore your children and use your cell phone while your kid is trying to talk to you. Is there a way to give a positive incentive where the, um, the health behavior isn't necessarily driving it, but you're doing it, for example, um, have you seen all these PSAs that are on, they're on Netflix and Hulu every five minutes that are about heart health and they're appealing to parents and grandparents and they're saying, good, take care of your heart so you'll live long enough to take care of your grandkids? And the tagline yeah. is, uh, your heart doesn't just belong to you, right? And I'm sure we've all seen the anti-smoking ones that are, if yeah. you can't stop smoking for you, stop smoking for your kid. Right, or, or your breath smells bad. Yes, yes, and then I, well, or there's, um, you know, another model is doing it for a spiritual connection or yeah. a responsibility to the so community, these are right? All, these are all part of it. Mm -hmm. And again, you can do 20 different things. If, if you do two or three well, the others become much easier. Hmm. And, you know, so everywhere I go, everyone tells me about all these great programs they know that other communities are doing. And, you know, they are great. And I need to be polite. On the other hand, yeah, I know we could be doing all these things, but I, there needs to be somebody local who actually wants to run this program mm -hmm. because they're already running this other program. And what we want to do is help them to run, either to say this program probably should be low priority or let's run this program really effectively and make it work before we start bringing in three other programs. And much of what we do is helping to consolidate people doing good things so that they work with one another rather than compete for resources and attention and so forth. Mm -hmm. It's just like in your own life. You, know, you can go to the gym, you can take a writing class. I mean, there's only so much you can do and you need to do two or three things well and that sort of suffuses itself. Right, you wanna create like a snowball, right? Yeah. Where you have enough success that you keep on rolling and the, you have enough success in the community that the whole community right. keeps going together, right? And then suddenly, you can model your behavior on your neighbors. You know, Mrs. Jones was in this diabetes program and you know, she just looks happier and her kids are slightly bouncier and I wonder what she's doing. Maybe I could ask. So let me ask you, when it comes to good health choices, is addiction different than other health choices? Because I'm wondering what agency and choice are like when you have a physical dependency versus when you're just making a a more mundane choice about exercise or eating or something like that? Well, number one, it's much more difficult. Two, so physical dependency is real and you have physical withdrawal and you know, at, at the end, I mean, we were at Restoration House today, which is a sort of halfway house up in Lake County. And people who are addicted tend to have all kinds of comorbidities, mm -hmm. you know, they've, partly because they're addicted, they don't take good care of themselves, so they might have diabetes or COPD or, you know, it's like rarely 
you're addicted for long and you don't have something else, or you have some kind of physical problem, you take a painkiller and then you become addicted. So it's, all these things happen together, number one. It's, it's not that simple. But when there were a lot of soldiers who were addicted to drugs when they were over in, I think, Vietnam or Iraq, and when they came back, they just stopped using because it was easy, and it was easy for them. That The context was different. And so I think to some extent the substances are over, people are, people don't understand that the vulnerability to addiction is the problem, hmm. not this, this is overstated, don't go, you know, quitting me, but it's, it's the pattern of use rather than the substance itself. Some people can gamble for fun Friday night for years and they're not addicted to it. Some people drop in, the, the gambling takes over their lives. So do you think that the first thing you have to address in, a, in an addiction is social situation, social, the social environment that's driving that behavior or the, the underlying depression, the underlying PTSD, underlying okay, it's not, whatever it is? There's no single answer. It's going to depend on the person. It's going to depend on a combination of circumstances. People need to be ready. And then the system should be ready to take them in. And the problem right now is... So in Lake County, for example, we asked today, this is interesting, there's probably 600 people that are homeless and mostly addicted. There's this house we were at that has 10 beds. The woman who runs it said, you know, I know 100 people right now that if we could take them in, we could serve them effectively. And so she was implying the other 500 aren't ready. And that's a combination of they, they're not ready, whatever that means. It's, it's their life circumstances. They don't really want to quit for whatever reason. You know, if you could change everything around them, and it includes their circumstances, it includes psychological counseling, it includes if they have physical pain, giving them physical therapy for their pain, mm -hmm. it includes helping them get medically assisted treatment for the ones who have you know, the physical substance abuse. It's, it's a lot of things, and the more of those things you can combine around the person, but the person also needs to, in practical terms, the person needs to walk in and, and be ready for that. They need to be, and it, believe me, money is a huge part of it also. You know, They need to be able to move to another neighborhood or mm -hmm. avoid their friends. They need to be able to get a job, and many people have, you, know, you can't get a job because you can't pass the drug test, or you can't get a job because you had a run-in with the police and you're black and you went to jail and now you have a record. All these things combined to make it very difficult. Right, so you have to have a constellation of services that are willing to meet people with different needs at different phases of and whatever they communicate are. with one another. So it's real complicated. Yeah. Are you doing this? Um, I, so I live in Oakland. Um, Oakland, one of the big projects that they have right now is starting these things called yes. navigation centers. Is this, is yeah, this something you're working on? Do you want to yeah, it's having, that is? It's having a care worker who pulls things together for you. And you know, right now, there's huge 
one of my favorite stories is about this panelist in Washington, D.C. So the fire department actually often acts as an ambulance, and they pick people up, and they take them to the emergency room. But because of HIPAA, they can't share data with the healthcare system. And so mm -hmm. this guy on the panel who worked for the healthcare system, he got a job as a volunteer fireman so that he could finally get their data. Wow. <laughs> yeah. You need people like that. Wow. Yeah, so, well, so the idea of the navigation centers is kind of like a one-stop shop where somebody shows up and they say, here's the things that I need help with. I need help with homelessness. I need help with getting to the doctor. I need help with childcare. And by the way, if you could help me get in touch with my daughter. Right. Or, oh, and the restoration house, one of the great stories is they have, it's, it's partly learning and it's partly they need, they, they're short of space, so people have roommates. And they introduced this guy to his new roommate, and he said, Dad? <laughs> <laughs> wow. And we, we met those guys today. Wow. Well, let me just ask you one more, two more questions, and we'll kick it over to the audience. Okay. Uh, so uh, I'm curious if you think this is purely a, a problem for the social sciences and the behavioral sciences, or if there's a, in, a role for engineering to play here. Um, there's a role for engineering, I mean, just to design everything from a house to a hospital bed to a hospital system that's friendly to uh, buildings that encourage you to walk up the stairs. And you know, certainly a lot of digital health tools, I think they're useful, but primarily delivered with or through people and ideally locally with people you know as opposed to mm -hmm. Yeah, it's again. The more it, we're still human, we're still wet and chemical. We're not digital, uh, but I think there's a huge role ultimately, and this is what we want to influence for policymakers. You know, mm -hmm. Who pays for this? Why don't we invest in our human infrastructure as well as our physical infrastructure? Mm -hmm. Global sickening is closer to us, even though we don't recognize it, than global warming. Because if we're not here to experience the planet, it doesn't matter what happens. So let me ask you just to, to bring it back to the idea of time. So you're halfway through the project, 10-year project, but 10 um, years? We're about a third through. It a ends third? in 2024, even okay. though it began in 20. We, so it took us a while to get started. <laughs> so that's some advanced math. We, we, picked, we picked the communities in 2014, oh, but okay. it really, we really got going in 2015. So it's beginning of 2015 to the end of 2024. Okay. Well, even an expanded 10 years is pretty yes. small in yeah. terms of time, right? Yes. So, and health, health is not the kind of thing that lends itself necessarily to breakthroughs and killer apps and these kind of quick turnaround flashy results. So I'm interested in your thoughts on how to keep going, how to not get frustrated when it's slow. Um, you know, you, it's, so I used to think, gee, I'm glad I'm doing this only part-time because otherwise I'd go crazy. And now I'm more or less doing it full-time. <laughs> but we, we're seeing things begin to happen. And there's, there's an awful lot to do. But it is slow. You, you have to be patient because you're not, you're getting people to change. You're not 
simply installing a new software app. Mm -hmm. But the effects are also long-term. So it's, but yes, you do have to be really patient. It's, it's like raising children. And at the end, you're amazed how fast it was. So 2024 is a really interesting question. We're, we're hoping to have lots of nice scientific quantifiable evidence and, and real financial returns and, and stuff like that, and also compelling stories. And it will certainly not be done. I originally committed to five years, now I committed to 10. And I say that because there's money involved and there's, you know, like, that's what I'm committed to. What we'll do in 2024, we don't really know. I mean, mm -hmm. with luck, there'll be a few documentaries that will be amazing and compelling and, you know, President Gillibrand or somebody like that <laughs> will be, you know, if, what we want to do is change collective opinion about what's worth paying for and, and some of what Jeff talked about, it, about innovative financing and what are, what are our taxes for? They should be for investing. If there were one thing I could change about how the U.S. does its budget, it's to call spending on health investment mm -hmm. and then to call spending on health care as, as kind of like it's spending you have to do, but it's really repair spending versus investment spending. I've heard you say you're an optimist, and I'm wondering if you we could kind of end this part of the talk with you telling us just a little bit about what you're optimistic about for health. What, what can we do better? What can we get right? We can do everything we just talked about, really. <laughs> and, and we can understand better that it's, it's worth doing this, and you, you may not be able to influence what the government does, but you may be able to influence what an employer does about mm -hmm. investing in their people long-term. You may be in, there, there's so many ways in which the lucky people like you, who influence other people's opinion, can start to think differently about you know, children versus adults. Let's invest in our children. Let's. Yeah, the, the people we talked to today, they weren't specimens. They were people who had a bit of bad luck and were, you know, f had suddenly had some good luck. And how, how can we make more people, so you don't need to be lucky not to be damaged by the time you're five years old. Mm -hmm. So the system makes everybody a little bit luckier. Yeah, or makes you not need to be lucky. Yeah, good, good. I mean, we, we are all so lucky. That's, that's what you begin to realize, you know, just. Good, let's, I think let's take a few questions from the audience. Yeah, so, Michael Hi, I'm, I'm the guy the in the velvet jacket, uh, for <laughs> me, and, and get my eye, and I'm gonna hand you the mic. I'm gonna sneak in a quick question, and the Wellville team um, are gonna keep the other mic, so if you guys wanna be part of it, uh, but step up on stage so we can see you when, when we do, so we can all see you. I'm gonna sneak a quick question in here. Esther, um, where does the long-term thinking, um, uh, where is it best applied here? Obviously, you're taking a long-term approach, um, I don't know if every decision that's improving health with an individual 
is a product of long-term thinking, maybe a short-term thinking goal that helps improve their lives, but is it administrators or advocates and they have the long-term thinking? Where are you seeing where that um, long-term thinking approach kind of is making the most value in the communities? And, and do you see the individuals over time getting a better sense of long-term thinking and start making decisions in that way? Um. Christina, you look ready to answer. Uh, hi. Uh, that, you get that for sitting in the front row. Uh, I just want to sort of uh, repeat the question back at you. Are you you're asking where within the communities I see we we see that that the long-term thinking actually exists right now? Is that what the question was? Um, where uh, do you see uh, the people you're working with mm -hmm. um, that that they get a long, they have a long view and that's what's motivating them or making the pro program successful or are is it just that you have a long view and you get them started uh, but they may be doing it for more short term things because right. they start to see how it's a short term benefit. Well, I think. I'm going to answer the question this way. So what's one of the really interesting things about the work that we're doing in all the communities is we're, we're trying to build really strong coalitions or collaboratives that are multi-sector across services within the communities. So not just the healthcare systems, but social service systems, the, the um, criminal justice systems, education, whoever really comes to the table in the communities and what I find is really interesting um, as an observer, because as Esther mentioned, I don't, I'm not an advisor to one particular community, I'm meta. Um, uh, so what I find that's really interesting is that, is when these, these individuals who work for institutions um, doing these things that are supposed to be helping and supporting people in these silos, when they come together and first of all learn that they're all facing the same issues and they're investing in some of the same, um, in trying to solve the same problems, all of a sudden they see that they can, um, you know, all be pulling in the same direction and the load will be eased. And so all, all of a sudden the sort of daily, I'm gonna call it drudgery of, of having to, to um, you know, help people who often are in very desperate situations becomes, you know, you can all of a sudden sort of like, instead of looking at the next step, you can sort of look up and see the horizon and sort of really understand where it is you're going so that seeing that spark that goes off in, in people's heads and seeing the value of collaborating and working together, I think is one of the more inspirational things that I've seen as an observer since I started working with the community. And I'm hoping that answers your question. Um, so I have a question about how you all, hey, in the back, um, how you all balance giving nudges versus letting local champions um, essentially have agency. Um, I think there's a lot of kind of orders of magnitude difference between different health interventions. So if someone comes in with something that they want to do that you think could be much more effective if they just changed it, do you try and persuade people or do you let people just do what they really are passionate about? Do you want to do that? Or? Yeah, I'll, I'll try, but I, I don't think I have an answer. <laughs> uh, I, I think, uh, uh, in a general sense, um, 
I'll, I'll speak for myself. I, I, I think I tend to allow them, uh, that is someone who has an idea, um, to pursue that idea, a program, what have you. Um, and there, there are a couple of things that, a couple of reasons for that. One is that it may be that it will be effective. Um, the, the other more important reason is that, that they're gonna learn something. And the, the nature of, of this work is, as I think you've, you've sort of figured out by now, it's very complex. Uh, as Christina said, the, uh, there, there's no one single um, sort of power player in a community. And if, if there is one who thinks that they have that position, they're pretty quickly disabused of that notion. Uh, and, and so it, it, we don't really know all of the, uh, the network relationships that make a community. We know they exist, we don't really know what they are. The locals know that, or they're in a much better position than we are to, to learn them. And if we allow a, a local uh, agency, for instance, to uh, implement a program and it flops, that's okay. They, they learn something and they, they, they have made um, explicit some of the connections and some of the relationships that will be necessary in the future to implement more successfully. So um, I, I, think that's, I think that's probably the general yeah. approach that, that we take. I, I don't think I'm speaking just for myself there. And we, we also, I mean, it's, it's really great. We, we correct one another. I mean- Well, we're learning too. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And, and so- no one, no one has done this before. Yeah. So. And we have, you know, I, I have a tendency to think I know the answer. And <laughs> <laughs> it's really helpful to have a team that just, we all correct the other's excesses. And it's, it's really, it's, I haven't ever had so much fun. I mean, this is the ironic thing. I'm doing all this good work and it's, it's really <laughs> great. Um, yeah. I think the next person with the question is here. Hi. Um, Specifically in California, to what extent do you work to complement or collaborate with existing government programs such as Healthy Start, Healthy Families, First Five, and do they know you exist? Yeah. Um, in each community, it's different. And in Lake County, we're working with Health and Human Services, but they're kind of underfunded. In Oregon, we're working with Care Oregon, which is the local, you know, the, the Medicaid payer plan in Muskegon, the entity that we work with is called One in 21, and they're a joint venture of public health of Muskegon and, believe it or not, the Rotary Club. So it's, it's different in each place. And, you know, whatever, it's, it's like, we don't own everything. You know, the stuff that's happening in Muskegon, some of it is there without us and it's great. And we're, what we're trying to do is encourage the people we're working with to work more effectively with everything that's there and to you know, just 
become more of an umbrella. They don't need to control it. They don't need to fund it all. There, there's this tendency to want to be proud of what you're doing and not really kind of ignore what the other guys are doing. But if you can adopt them all, everybody benefits. So the, the government can be an important part and they certainly fund a lot of stuff. But there's also, it varies. Yeah, um, hi, I work in aging and public health, so I can't help but notice that almost all of the metrics you mentioned really happen in the first half of someone's life course. And yet, I know that uh, in the 20th century, the bulk of the life expectancy gains were really disproportionately affecting those under five, which is why we saw it rise and rise and rise. So I'm wondering what you see as the potential to work with people who are sort of in the second half of life and where that fits into the well-built model. Honestly, it, it, it does not, like everything we've talked about, you need to be somewhat focused and, you know, if, if someone in a Wellville has a program for grandparents and grandchildren, I think that's wonderful, and it is. And there's also lots of things around elder care and you know, caregiving and so forth and so on, but it's, it's not our focus. I, and um, I, at the risk of um, uh, maybe overcorrecting Esther, uh, uh, and and also explaining that that um, by way of explaining that that Wellville is sort of a ethereal designation for things. There's an example in Spartanburg that speaks directly to that question. Uh, I spend enough time there that that I get my nose into things that aren't directly. Or, or, or even partially under what you might think of as the Wellville umbrella. That is in any of our communities, as Esther mentioned before. There are lots of things that are going on that we, we might not even be aware of, but I spend enough time there that I, I sort of catch wind of, of things. And, and the, the local hospital, as part of its um, efforts to work out in the community, has recently engaged a group of pastors in one of the uh, neighboring towns and one of the concerns of that um, of that group of pastors is the aging population and specifically what they're concerned about is the effect of on on child caregivers um, of their aging parents and how how to help how to help that out they haven't figured it out but at least they've begun to talk about it and uh, well, you know, we'll see what happens with that story. But um, so that that's something that's sort of maybe not on our radar screen necessarily, but it's something going on in the community uh, that the hospital's involved in. We're involved with the hospital, and wherever we can, you know, provide any sort of what's kind of called technical assistance, we're happy to do so. So I, you know, we'll learn something about that, and, and it's a need that's being expressed, and, and is of concern to one of what you might call our partners. So. I think there was sorry. I think there was a hand up on the second row. Was there somebody on the second row who had a question? Maybe you can pass the mic. Oh. Was that a question? Um, 
And we're, we're coming close to time, so I think this may be the last question, then Carrie, maybe you want to wrap up. But could everyone from the Wellville team go on, on stage right now? Because I think, Esther, the plan is you guys are going to stick around, and so you'll be able to talk to folks uh, afterwards so everyone can see who they can talk to to learn more uh, and, and keep this conversation going. Um, so we are going to, uh, we'll, we'll end the stage part, but we hope you'll stick around because these guys are going to stick around and we, we want to keep it going. So. Office hours was well filled. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> indeed. I'll Thank ask you. this question, but um, I perfectly understand uh, it's not directed uh, immediately to Wellville. I, I feel it's directed towards our collective health, given the political situation right now. So, but I'm happy to cede to someone else who really feels this is inappropriate. But given your experience with uh, investing in Russia, I wonder if you have an insight that you could share with us about the current situation. Um, thanks, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I don't, I don't want to talk about the president specifically, but the thing, the thing that seems so familiar in Russia, from Russia, you know, when I, I went to Russia in 1989, and I learned so much more about the United States and the world than I learned about Russia from that. And I've been going there regularly ever since. I had data security clearance one year, and I discovered I'd been to Russia 120 times in the previous. Wow. Sorry, 60 times in the previous 10 years, so six times a year. I spent six months living there in the Soviet Union in 2008 to 2009 because I was in a government facility, which was the cosmonaut, the Yuri Gagarin Cosmonaut Training Center. And the, the thing that is so pernicious and that I do believe they actively tried to encourage. You know, what the relationship with Trump was in particular, I don't know, but the, the, the challenge is the skepticism and cynicism that is created when there's not an interest in the truth. So I, I talked to a Russian journalist once and I asked her, so when when you talked about the truth in Soviet times, what you know, what did what did that mean to you? And she said, We really we didn't care about the truth. That wasn't the point. If we would get a government handout, because all the handouts came from the government in one form or another, all the institutions were government institutions. We forgot a handout about the health dangers of butter. We would not care about the health dangers of butter, but we would care about why was this particular piece of news presented to us. Oh, there must be a shortage of butter. And we would run out and buy as much butter as we could find <laughs> before publishing the news. When I was in Kazakhstan, there was a discussion about the, so the national telco was half owned by the government and half owned by private interests who happened to be related to Nazarbayev. And the news came out while I was there that the guy running this outfit was making, I don't know, $130,000 a month. There's some crazy amount. And the discussion wasn't about that amount. I mean, that was, yeah, sure, it's corrupt. It was, 
what caused this particular piece of news to be released? Who was behind it? And most recently, I was talking to a Russian friend about government and politics and sort of the same question you just asked. And he said, our problem, we have no strategy. We have only tactics, short term. Was that intelligible? We have no <laughs> strategy, <laughs> no tactic, no, no strategy, only tactics, short term. And it's, you know, I don't think it's, it's that. It's the short, it's the same and it comes back to, yes, it is short term. There's, there's no long term strategy. Uh, so yeah. there can't be hope. Yeah, there's, there's not much hope. You try to, again, you try to solve the immediate challenges. You, you, yeah, you, you try, yeah. you're surviving, you know, if we can get through this day. And you, one thing that struck me when I first went to Russia in 1989, I would write and say, I'm coming in, you know, in two weeks, can we have lunch on August 13th? And the person would say, well, call me when you get to Moscow the week before. So I would call the week before and they would say, well, call me on Monday and we'll set it up for Wednesday. And then on Monday they'd say, call Wednesday morning. And, we, and you know, you couldn't, and I don't know whether they were looking for a better offer or they were afraid <laughs> things would fall apart, but it's, and it is beginning to infect us too. We, we are becoming, I mean, this is the purpose of the long now, but it's getting worse in many ways. It's, it's day trading, it's, short-term charity, you know, it's, it's give the guy in the street two bucks instead of build a shelter where they can recover their dignity. It's, you know, cell phones and so final, I know we're getting late. Uh, one of my favorite pieces of research by Deborah Estrin, who's Judy Estrin's sister, when people order online on Wednesday for Friday night, the food they order or the videos, this is back when you ordered videos, I guess, they would be more, they would be healthier or more uplifting mm -hmm. than if you picked the same, if you went home and picked something up on the way home. Mm -hmm. you, you know, we do have long-term and short-term selves. We're not, and this is the challenge, how do you get yourself to manipulate yourself to make these long-term decisions? And there, you know, there are all these nudge things like buy yourself a gym membership and then you've already paid the money or buy yourself a gym membership and then every time you don't go to the gym, they charge you $10 or all these, these clever things that, because we ourselves have these long and short term aspects to our personality. So, right. thank you for the question I didn't answer. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so, um, before we go, I wanted to thank uh, Esther and Jeff and Brad and Christina with the traditional thank you gift of uh, the Long Now. This is the Long Now Challenge coin. And now you can redeem this uh, for a drink at the bar. <laughs> oh, but no, no, keep the, it for the long term. The, yeah, or keep it for the long term. The legend is no one has ever redeemed it because it's that cool. <laughs> so thank you very much for, for your talk thank tonight. You. And thank you, everybody, for coming out.
If you enjoyed this talk, check out previous episodes with Neil Stevenson, Stuart Brand, Kim Stanley Robinson, and many more. Find them on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen. The Long Now Foundation is a member-supported nonprofit dedicated to fostering long-term thinking and responsibility. Long Now members make everything we do possible. Learn more at longnow.org.